Hey, this is the last sermon in a series we have been doing since I think August, uh, a series called Open Doors. And I cannot think of a better way to end than to talk about just focusing on Jesus. Jesus is the door. In fact, that's one of the seven I am statements he makes in the Gospel of John. One of the things he says is, I am the door. And so we're going to look at that today. Jesus, the door. Uh, John chapter 10, starting in verse 7. It says, So Jesus again said to them, Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, and the sheep did not listen to them. He says it again. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and to destroy, but I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. <clears throat> now, we're going to look at Jesus and who he is and what it means for Jesus to be the door, but I think it's also important that we look at who we are in the story. And Jesus calls us uh, a certain character in this story. And really the Bible over and over again calls us this type of character or this type of person. Who are we in the story? Well, the, the Bible and Jesus says we are sheep, all right? Now, I know that's not a, uh, a reference that many people like to call themselves today. Usually if, if you say someone is a sheep, that means uh, that they're not very smart, not very bright. And uh, maybe Jesus is telling you something today. I don't know. Uh, there are many references in the Bible about us people being like sheep. Psalm 95.7 says, We are the people of God's pasture, the sheep of his hand. Isaiah 53.6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, meaning he's the shepherd, I'm the sheep. The question is, why sheep? Why does the Bible over and over again call us a sheep? Why not horses? Why not camels? Why not cats? Why not dogs? Why are we sheep? Well, while sheep are cute and cuddly and they have value and can provide through their meat and their wool, I can assure you today the metaphor that Jesus uses is not a compliment. <laughs> it's not because we're cute and cuddly. Uh, it's not a compliment. Here's the truth about sheep. Sheep are completely helpless. They cannot survive in the wild by themselves. You've never been out in the woods and ran up on a flock of wild sheep out in the woods like you would horses or other animals. And there's a reason for that. It's because sheep are slow. They can't move very fast. They're helpless. They're not nimble. And they just literally cannot take care of themselves. This is from a guy named J. Douglas McMillan. He was a shepherd turned pastor, and this is his exact words. He loves sheep. He loves them. I mean, he loves sheep with all of his heart, but here's what he says about sheep. Sheep are very stupid animals. Sheep follow each other and lose their direction in ways that cats and dogs and no other animals do. Even when you find it, it can be hard to round them up because they run to and fro in a panic. So sheep are completely dependent upon the shepherds that take care of them because they cannot take care of themselves. 
So what does the Bible say about us? What it says is that we are utterly dependent upon God for our existence, our survival, and our welfare. Uh, sheep do stupid things. And, and, and have you, I don't know, maybe you felt like this sheep, maybe you've seen this clip. It was going around YouTube, Facebook for a long time. But this is, this is a great picture of sh- what sheep are like and what they are do. Check this video out. С этой стороны против солнца. Is, can anybody identify with that? Have you ever been pulled out of a hole just to jump back in it? <laughs> this is what sheep do. And this is what the Bible says we are like, okay? And the Bible says we're all like sheep who've gone astray, like, like we've lost our, our way. And when a sheep gets lost, it doesn't have the ability to take care of itself. I, I found this story. I found this picture. Uh, this is Chris the sheep. And Chris was found at Mulligan's Flat near the border of New South Wales. Look at this sheep. He had been lost for five years. (laughs) No one had sheared him, sheared his wool for five years. And look at, look at it, overgrown. uh, And it was, it was so much overgrown and so much wool that the, the, it had impaired his ability to move, it had impaired his ability to walk around, and he was at great risk of infection or injury or even death. When they shorn his wool, Chris gave 91 pounds of wool. 91 pounds. I mean, that's a lot of socks, if you know what I mean. I mean, that's a lot of pair of socks right there. Oh, man. But this is, here's a picture of Chris getting all that wool off of him. And, and this is what we see on the other side. Here's the after. You got to know he felt so much better after shedding 91 pounds of wool. I mean, if I could shed 91 pounds, I would feel so much better myself. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure how Chris got lost. And, uh, but maybe Chris would tell you today, wandering off and being lost is not all that it's cracked up to be. And uh, maybe you can testify to that. You know, maybe you remember what it was like when you ran off from the good shepherd. Maybe you remember what it was like when you were doing life on your own, but Jesus found you. He brought you home, just like they brought Chris home. And he started peeling back the layers of stuff off of your life. The years of abuse, the years of sin-stained past, the years of life without a purpose, the years of addiction, and he brought you into his pasture, and now the good shepherd is watching over you, and that is the good news. And in, and Jesus said, I am the door to the sheep. And then he said, he makes a statement in verse 8, he says, those who came before me were thieves and robbers. I want to talk about that for a moment. What are the thieves and the robbers that tried to destroy us? What are the things that try to get us to wander off the path and end up like Chris out there by ourselves on our own uh, in, in mortal danger? Well, I believe that the human heart has two mindsets or two modes, two default modes that, get, that, that 
we are like sheep who have gone astray. And these are two things that will lead you down the wrong path every time. And one of them might be surprising to you. One of them, not so, so much, but two R's. One is rebellion and the other is religion. Let me say that again. One is rebellion and the other is religion. So I believe in every single one of us that our souls have a, a, a hole, a universe-sized hole inside of us. There is a yearning, an angst deep down, okay? And it doesn't matter all the money, all the friends, all the success, all the lovers, all the entertainment could never fill that hole. And when you're alone, after the alcohol is worn off, after the drugs have worn off, after the people have gone and you're by yourself and there's no distractions and there's no noise, you feel that hole. What is that? That's a hole that only God can fill in your life. That's an eternity-sized hole and you need eternal life to fill that hole. You need Jesus. But what do we run to to try to fill that hole? There's two things, two default modes that we run to, either rebellion or religion. And one of the stories in the Bible that really helps illustrate this is the story of the prodigal sons. Notice I didn't say prodigal son because the story has two sons, not just one. Both were lost. One was lost outside the house. One was lost inside the house. One chose rebellion and the other chose religion. Jesus tells this parable in Luke chapter 15. In the story, he has is a father who has two sons. And the younger son asks for his portion of the inheritance from his father who grants his son's request. This son, however, is a prodigal, meaning he lives a wasteful and an extravagant life, but he squanders the fortune and eventually becomes destitute. As a consequence, now he returns home empty-handed, intended to beg his father to accept him back as a servant. But to the son's surprise, he's not scorned by his father, but he's welcomed back with a celebration and a welcoming party. Envious, the older son refuses to participate in the party, in the festivities. And the father tells the older son, you, you are always ever with me and all that I have is yours. But the younger brother was lost and he's now found. This is a story of the prodigal son. Two sons, one chooses rebellion, the other chooses religion. So let's talk about rebellion for a minute. What is that? Rebellion is when you want to throw off all rules and all boundaries. Rules are seen as oppressive, okay? Real freedom is living however you want to. It's when you see you see the Bible or you think about, people think the Bible is oppressive. They think God's rules or laws or what God says about how we should live our lives is those, that's oppression and we should cast off all restraint. It's the 60s, right? Free love, uh, live however you want to, do whatever makes you happy. Whatever makes you happy inside, that's what you should go after. You should not have to conform to any external norms or rules. Pastor Tim Keller says that every sin is rooted in a character assassination of God. The number one way the devil convinces us to sin is to convince us that God is stingy or God is boring or God is holding out on us, that God is really not that good, that God can't be trusted. And really the only person who could be trusted is yourself and your feelings. Trust what you want and what you desire. Do you know this? This is interesting, but the church of Satan, 
Satan, this is, this is from their website. It says, Satan to us is a symbol of pride, liberty, and individualism. And it serves as an external metaphorical projection of our highest personal potential. We do not believe in Satan as a being or a person. What are they saying? The church of, saying, of Satan is saying we put the individual at the center of the universe, meaning whatever you want as an individual, you should be able to have and you should be able to go after and fulfill your wildest desires. What is that? This is rebellion. In the story of the prodigal son, the younger son demands that he receive his inheritance now, that the father cannot be trusted, that the son knows what's best for himself. In fact, normally the inheritance did not even pass to the heirs until the, the father had died. So to request it prematurely was really what the younger son was saying was, dad, I wish you'd just go ahead and die. What a slap in the face to the father. But you know what's interesting is the father lets the have son what he wants. Sometimes God will give you what you want. You want to leave the father's house? You want to leave his protection? You want to see what life is like on your own without God? He'll let you. He let Adam and Eve take from the tree of garden. He allowed them to see what life is like without God. This is where Western society is right now. We value freedom rugged individualism. We value our ability to choose our own destiny. And culture promises you that you can take the pen of your life and write your own script. We can choose our own identities, our own values, our own norms. It's supposed to liberate us, but actually what ends up happening, happening is it enslaves us. We thought to be free to pursue our own desires and do whatever we want. We could, we could be just be free, but really what happens is you become a prisoner of your own desire. This is an old saying. It says, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. The book of James tells us rebellion will eventually give way to death. You see what you thought you signed up for looks nothing like what you actually get. <laughs> the prodigal son, th son thought it would be a party, but it ended up being devastating. Oh, you thought you, thought <clears throat> you were going to live however you want to, but it, ended up, it ends up ripping you up on the inside. You see, sin is an illusion. Life without God-given boundaries, standards, norms, it doesn't lead to eternal life, abundant life like Jesus says. No, the son starts out partying, but he ends up in a pit. He ends up losing all that he has. He squanders his life away. This is what the younger son does. And that is not the abundant life that Jesus promises. But what about the older son? What does the older son choose? He doesn't choose. He doesn't cast off all restraint and go headlong into the party lifestyle. No, he actually stays at the father's house. But... He's lost even at the Father's house. You can be in church today and still be lost. You can be at church this morning and still be lost. Religion. What do I mean by religion? I, here's what I mean by religion. I mean self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is another default mode of the human heart. Self-righteousness just means you try to become right in the eyes of God by your own effort by your own works, by your own discipline. You're trying to earn eternal life by the good things that you do. And so you have to try harder and do better to earn God's approval. 
and your relationship with God has simply become a checklist of do's and don'ts. Maybe even coming to church today was just a checklist and you check it off. But see, here's what religion religion does. It pulls up those who perform, performs well, and it pushes down and judges those who can't live up to the standard. So don't think you aren't self-righteous, all right? All of us have a tendency to slip into this. You know, so people come to church and they've heard about Jesus and they've heard about his grace and they come into church sometimes and what do they find? They find a bunch of self-righteous people who are feeling better about their performance than other people that walk in the doors. You see, religion is a transactional relationship with God. The older son had become hard in his heart towards his father. He was living in his father's house, but his relationship was more transactional than relational. He saw the father more as a landlord than as a loving father who provided freely for him. You see, you can see God as your father, or you will see God as, a, as like a distant landlord. A landlord or a tenant, what is that? That's a business relationship. I provide the landlord with rent and keeping the house in order, and he provides me with a place to live. And the commitment that we have to one another is all about, hey, what, what, what I have for you, okay? He, he has a home. I can live in that home, but I have to pay the dues. Nothing wrong with that. That's just the way it is. It's just performance. I'm sorry, it's just business. It's performance-based. But when you see God as a landlord and your father, you will think that you are in some sort of contract with him. You will think you do your part, he does his part. And if something goes wrong in your life, then when you walk through a hard time, you get mad at God because you think, hey, I've been paying my rent. I've been coming to church. I've been doing the things I'm supposed to do. Why aren't you holding up your end of the bargain? Why are you not doing what you're supposed to do, God? And this is pride that comes up in our hearts and it leaves us very ungrateful. It's a performance-based Christianity. Notice the older son talked about his performance to the dad. He said, I've never left your house. I've always served you. I never did what that other son did, but you've never done anything for me like you did for him. And the grace of the father makes the religious son angry. Father, why are you being so good to them? Why are you being so good to him? He's a filthy sinner. Look at all that he's done. Look what I've done. But in my father's house, the relationship we have is never based about performance. If, if, if we, as, as a child, if you live with, in, your, in your parents' home, it's never about what the child can do for the parent. No, the, the parent loves the child. The parent loves uh, the, his children and provides for them. And they never expect, I'm not expecting my eight-year-old to pay rent to me. I'm not, like I don't expect him to pay rent. I don't expect my four-year-old um, <clears throat> to, to pay rent. Why? Because I'm their father and they are my child. And the commitment that I have to them is more than what they can do for me. The commitment I have for them is blood deep. So what does Jesus offer to the rebellious and the religious sheep today? For those who are rebellious, for those who want no boundaries, Jesus gives us himself. Jesus doesn't just give us rules to follow. 
He gives us a relationship. What does the scripture say? The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his sheep by name. And he leads them out. And when he has brought all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. What does Jesus offer for a rebellious person? He's not going to offer you a bunch of rules. He's going to offer you himself. The shepherd knows his flock. He calls by name, okay? He, he gives us guidelines and boundaries to live by, but he only does that because he loves us. You know, he doesn't want us to get hurt. Boundaries and things of that nature are so we don't get hurt. He wants us to have life, and he knows if you just live however you want to, you will not have abundant life. But if you live for him and with him, you will have life. And for the religious person today, what does Jesus offer us? He offers us a gift. If you only knew the gift that God has for you, a life, a super abundant life, eternal life, your approval with God has nothing to do with your performance. He loves you more than you could ever know. You're his son, you're his daughter, and Jesus is committed to satisfying the deepest desires by thrilling you with himself. Martin Lord Jones says this, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of amazement at the grace of God. When was the last time you just said, thank you, Lord Jesus, that I'm saved today? Thank you that I, it is by grace through faith that I'm saved. That I did not earn it. There's nothing I can boast about. I am just a sheep of your pasture. Religion and rebellion. Jesus tells the people listening, he says, I am the door to the sheep. Jesus, when he says that, he's making an exclusive claim in the book of John. Now, a lot of people like Jesus, the teacher, right? They love the guy that taught us to love one another. No one has a problem with that. A lot of people like Jesus, the healer. Jesus lays hands on sick, on sick people. Nobody has a problem with that. Everybody loves Jesus, the includer. Jesus goes to the outcasts of society. He makes room for them. The least and the lost and the forgotten. Everybody loves that Jesus. Everybody loves the Jesus who clothes the poor and feeds the hungry. Everyone loves that Jesus. But when Jesus makes a statement like, I am the door, when Jesus makes a statement like, the only way to salvation is through me, well, that's an exclusive claim, and that's when people start getting a little, uh, a little anxious about Jesus. You see, at night, shepherds, would, they would put their sheep in enclosures. They'd be out in the wilderness, and they would find enclosures like a cave of some sort, and they would put their sheep in the cave at night to protect them, and then they would lay down at the mouth of the cave, and they would act as the door. They would act as the gate. No one was getting to those sheep. No one was coming in and out except through the shepherd. He was the front door. And Jesus is saying, the only way to be safe, the only way to have life, the only way to have salvation is through me. You got to go through me. He says it like this in another place in the gospel, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is making an exclusive claim. And some people say, that's narrow-minded. You see, that's why I can't get down with Christianity or the Bible because that is an exclusive claim. Well, let me ask you this. What about the other religions of the world? They all make exclusive claims, okay? Everyone's making claims, but we have to evaluate the claims and weigh out the truths and which one is the right claim. Every religion is making a claim. Well, Chad, you can't make exclusive claims because all roads lead to God. All doors lead to God, not just one. What if Jesus is just a door, not the door? And uh, often people who say that all religions are all roads lead to God, they'll often use the parable of the blind, the six blind men and the elephant. Have you heard that one before? How there was six blind men and they came to an elephant and they each touched a different part to the elephant and they were describing what an elephant is like. The first man touched the, the huge animal's side and said, oh, an elephant is smooth and solid like a big wall. It's very powerful. The second uh, man uh, felt the, the trunk of the elephant and said, oh, no, an elephant is like a giant snake. The third blind man felt the tusk of the elephant and said, oh, this creature is sharp and deadly as a spear. The fourth man felt the legs of the elephant and said, no, this is an extremely large cow. The fifth man felt the elephant's ear and said, oh, no, I believe an elephant is like a huge fan. And then the sixth man felt the tail and said, oh, this is nothing more than a piece of old rope. There's nothing to this elephant. And, you know, what's the moral of the story? That they're all touching the same elephant and they're all describing the same thing, but they can't see. And so really they're all saying the same thing. And that's what people say about all religions, all roads read, uh, lead to God. The Buddhists and the, uh, the Islamists and the Christians, they, they all are really describing the same God. But do you see the people that make that claim? People that say they're making the claim that all these are seen. Do you realize what they're claiming? They're claiming to be the only person in the story who can see. Everyone else is blind, but I can see that all those religions lead to the same God. So they're making a claim. They're making an exclusive claim when they say that, that they can see and the rest of the world is blind. No, Jesus is making an exclusive claim, but Jesus can back up the claim. Jesus makes his exclusive claim to life. How can he make that? Because he came from the Father. He came from God, and he laid his life down for the sheep, and then he took it back up again, and now he offers us eternal life. Life. What is abundant life? What is Jesus talking about? All right, we're in the context of sheep. Remember, what's he talking about? He's talking about a fat, contented, flourishing sheep. That's what he's talking about. A sheep that is settled and not terrorized by the outside world, but it's taken care of. An abundant life that is only found in Jesus. The best life you could ever live is the life in Jesus. And you say, well, how could, if it's the good life, why is it such a narrow way? Why is it, why is it just through Jesus? That seems like such a small, narrow path to get to life. And, and uh, I would say you're right. It does seem like a small door, but I'm telling you, Jesus is the one door that leads to an expansive life. 
It leads, it's, it's, it's a small door that leads to an expanse of life on the inside. It, it kind of reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if you've ever, if you've seen that, but what happens when all the children, they get cramped inside of a little small, uh, a, a little small coat closet, all right, right? They go into this little small coat closet, but what they realize is that when they get inside the coat closet, that it opens up into a vast, wide world they'd never seen or been a part of before, called Narnia. And that's really what it's like to follow Jesus on the narrow path. You think you're going down this small, narrow way, but really what you realize is that it's going to open up into a wide, expansive life. Jesus comes not so you can just have physical life, so you can breathe and, uh, and, and have air, because I mean, no, you can be breathing, but not really live it. He didn't come just to give you life of the heart, a soul life, but he came to give you zoe life in the Greek, a life beyond life, spiritual life, abundant life, eternal life. And, 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 and it's a kind that <clears throat> leads to um, uh, just an abundance. That's what he said, abundant life. Where can we get this abundant life? How can we have this access? How can we be saved? Well, Jesus in this same passage, he says he's the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. What does that mean? It means that the sheep were in mortal danger. It means that something was coming. Something was coming to destroy the, the, the sheep, a thief. The thieves of rebellion, the thieves of religion, the devil. There were things coming to destroy the sheep. But instead of allowing the sheep to be taken, Jesus throws himself in front of the danger. And Jesus takes upon himself what the danger would have done to the sheep. He puts himself in harm's way to save us. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It reminds me of a story, a story of Oliver Cromwell and a soldier's fiance. Oliver Cromwell was a political leader in 17th century England, and he sentenced a soldier to death. And he ordered that the soldier would be executed when the, he said the soldier will be executed when the evening curfew bell would ring. The soldier had a fiance and she went and placed for his, she, she went and pleaded for his life, but Oliver didn't budge on the decision. So before the curfew bell was to ring, the fiance climbed to the bell tower and put herself in between the bell clapper and the bell. So the bell, when the rope was pulled, the bell did not make a sound. After many attempts to ring the bell, the ringers went and checked why it wasn't making a sound. And they found the soldier's fiance bruised and bloodied up from stopping the clapper from hitting the bell. Cromwell heard what had happened and was moved by such sacrifice that he pardoned the soldier from being executed. Can you imagine what it was like for that soldier? Imagine what it was like to wait for the dreadful sound of that bell. He waited and waited and waited for the horrible ringing of the bell, but it never uttered a sound. I wonder what was going on through his mind during the silence. Little did he know that the love of his life was the one taking the beating putting her body between the bell and the clangor, silencing the sound of his judgment with his very own flesh and blood. 
She climbed that tower because she would die trying to save the life of the one she loved. She could not stand by idly. She would absorb the sound of the bell herself. She would silence his judgment. She would silence the accuser. And you see, this is what Jesus, our Savior, did when he climbed up on the cross to be beaten and bloodied. Jesus, the good shepherd, stood between us and the ringing bell of our judgment so that we could be pardoned, so that we could walk free. He laid down his life for love. His broken body absorbed by the wrath and the sound of all the bad words and the judgment spoken over us until they could no longer be heard. This is how the good shepherd laid down his life for us. This is what the good shepherd does. This is why he's the only way, the only truth, the only life. What kind of God is this? A God who weeps, a God who bleeds. This is who Jesus is. I'm inviting you today to eternal life. I'm inviting you today to step through the door. Don't be a sheep that is lost and on its own thinking it can take care of itself when it really can't. It is utterly dependent upon the good shepherd for life. Father, I pray today for people listening. Lord, I pray, Lord, that they would be convicted in their heart, that they cannot do this life on their own, but they truly need you. Lord, I pray for those maybe who are saved by grace, but they've forgotten how good that grace is. Remind us today how good the grace is of the good shepherd is, Lord. And Lord, we just believe that abundant life is ours. Abundant life belongs to us today because of what you did on that cross and you got up out of that grave. We bless your name in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, this is the conclusion of our Open Doors series. I hope you have enjoyed it. And uh, Jesus is the door. What a way to end. We love you. We'll see you soon.